0: Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 85. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this on August 27th, 2022, in Austin, Texas, where the heat is broken and the rains have come. If you are new to the podcast, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. So... If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you have heard me say that last sentence many times. And if you've not heard the two or three episodes in which I talk about presentism, you might not be entirely clear about its meaning. Well, an online kerfuffle in the last week confirms that many academic historians are not entirely clear either. I try not to do current events in this podcast because it's in the nature of history podcasts that people listen to episodes years after they are made. But this controversy is a bit timeless, so I'm going to touch on it before we get to all the betrayal and perfidy in this week's episode. For purposes of this podcast, my definition of presentism is the first to pop up on the Googles. Quote, the uncritical adherence to present-day attitudes, especially the tendency to interpret past events in terms of modern values and concepts. A related but subtly different word is anachronism, which is the attribution of a custom event or object to a period to which it does not belong. It would be, for example, anachronistic to say that Philip II was evil for not defending religious freedom or that Elizabeth I was committing war crimes by issuing letters of Mark to Sir Francis Drake. Boom. A lot of what I would call presentism is also anachronism, but not all, if that's useful. Anyway, I like the word presentism because it's easy for people like me, who are not professional historians, to understand I discussed my objections to presentism in the back half of the revised introduction episode, which I dropped about four months ago in early April 2022. Among them, the most important is that presentism interferes with understanding. Quoting me, on this podcast, you don't hear throat clearing disclaimers such as, of course it was evil to burn down those indigenous villages. It's not that I don't think it was evil. As a reasonably decent person of the 21st century, I am as against burning down indigenous villages as much as anybody else today is. And more than most people who have ever lived, including, by the way, many indigenous peoples. But dismissing people of the past is evil, because they didn't have the same standards for righteous behavior that we have today is both intellectually lazy. Anybody can do that. And it obscures the far more interesting point that most of the time it was ordinary men and women doing these things that today we consider evil. Understanding why ordinary people burn down indigenous villages, to extend the metaphor, is the work of history. The week's online kerfuffle turned on an opinion piece from the current president of the American Historical Association, James Sweet, in which he gently and with a great deal of throat-clearing himself, took on the problem of presentism in academic history. I'll put a link to the whole thing in the show notes, at the top of which you will see the apology, in my view unwarranted, but certainly understandable that he appended after the reaction to the original piece, to which I will return after reading a pertinent excerpt for those of you who aren't in the position to read it. Here with Professor James Sweet on presentism. Quote, Twenty years ago in these pages, Lynn Hunt argued against presentism. She lamented historians' declining interest in topics prior to the 20th century as well as our increasing tendency to interpret the past through the lens of the present. Hunt warned that this rising presentism threatened to put us out of business as historians. If history was little more than short-term identity politics defined by present concerns, wouldn't students be better served by taking degrees in sociology, political science, or ethnic studies instead? The discipline did not heed Hunt's warning. From 2003 to 2013, the number of PhDs awarded to students working on topics post-1800 across all fields rose 18%. Meanwhile, those working on pre-1800 topics declined by 4%. During that time, the Wall Street meltdown was followed by plummeting undergraduate enrollments in history courses and increased professional interest in the history of contemporary socioeconomic topics. Then came Obama, and Twitter, and Trump. As the discipline has become more focused on the 20th and 21st centuries, historical analyses are contained within an increasingly constrained temporality. Our interpretations of the recent past collapse into the familiar terms of contemporary debates, leaving little room for the innovative, counterintuitive interpretations. This trend toward presentism is not confined to historians of the recent past. The entire discipline is lurching in this direction, including a shrinking minority working on pre-modern fields. If we don't read the past through the prism of contemporary social justice issues, race, gender, sexuality, nationalism, capitalism, are we doing history that matters? This new history often ignores the values and mores of people in their times, as well as Change over time, neutralizing the expertise that separates historians from those in other disciplines. The allure of political relevance, facilitated by social and other media, encourages a predictable sameness of the present and the past. This sameness is ahistorical, a proposition that might be acceptable if it produced positive political results. But it doesn't. In many places, history suffuses everyday life as presentism. America is no exception. We suffer from an overabundance of history, not as method or analysis, but as anachronistic data points for the articulation of competing politics. The consequences of this new history are everywhere. I traveled to Ghana for two months this summer to research and write, and my first assignment was a critical response to the 1619 Project, A New Origin Story. For a forthcoming forum in the American Historical Review. Whether or not historians believe that there is anything new in the New York Times project created by Nicole Hannah Jones, the 1619 project's a best selling book that sits at the center of current controversies over how to teach American history. As journalism, the project is powerful and effective, but is it history? When I first read the newspaper series that preceded the book, I thought of it as a synthesis of a tradition of black nationalist historiography dating to the 19th century. The project spoke to the political moment, but I never thought of it primarily as a work of history. Ironically, it was professional historians' engagement with a work that seemed to lend it historical legitimacy. Then the Pulitzer Center. In partnership with the Times, developed a secondary school curriculum around the project. Local school boards protested characterizations of Washington, Jefferson, and Madison as unpatriotic owners of forced labor camps, in quotes. Conservative lawmakers decided that if this was the history of slavery being taught in schools, the topic shouldn't be taught at all. For them, challenging the founders' position as timeless tribunes of liberty was racially divisive, also in quotes. At each of these junctures, history was a zero-sum game of heroes and villains viewed through the prism of contemporary racial identity. It was not an analysis of people's ideas in their own time, nor a process of change over time. Back to me. Longstanding and attentive listeners will note that Professor Sweet is making precisely the point I have done on various occasions, including the two introductory episodes to this podcast series, that academic historians might ask themselves why the percentage of undergrads majoring in history is collapsing. It isn't because they are all doing STEM now. It's because presentist history is not only indistinguishable from any number of social science and area studies majors— but it is so freaking predictable. And that makes it boring. Finally, it must be said that Sweet is no man of the right. He devotes several paragraphs to criticism of the frankly amateurish history deployed in recent Supreme Court opinions favored by American conservatives. But it wasn't conservatives who dragged the apology out of him. That came from his professional colleagues, both online and by other means. One measure of the hostility of the response was that Sweet had to block incoming emails on his account at the University of Wisconsin, which I learned when I tried to send him a supportive email. Presumably he was getting outraged emails from people who disagreed with his original statement and entirely different people who were upset that he apologized. That actually sucks. I printed off my email and sent it by the post office. Finding an envelope and stamp in the deep recesses of my desk was the hardest part. I'll let you know if I hear from him. Anyway, it's nice to know that there are people in high places who see things my way. All of that digression means that we won't get as far in this episode as I would have liked, but we will get into the fall of 1622, a new high watermark mark for the podcast timeline. It's the fall of 1621. The Pilgrims have reaped the bounty of their first harvest in the New World, and it is bounteous indeed. Nick Hunter, in his innovative history of the Mayflower Pilgrims, making haste from Babylon, described the fertility of New England and the native crops as follows, quote, The Pilgrims found that an acre of maize produced far more nutrition than an acre of wheat or rye in the environs of a place like Osterfield. In the spring, they planted only 20 acres of maize and another six of English barley and peas, the latter with seeds imported on the mayflower. In England, even before allowing for rents and tithes, a plot of land this size sown with wheat would barely feed 20 people, at most, and the farmer required additional meadow and pasture to feed his livestock. In America, using the methods learned from Tisquantum, the pilgrims achieved maize yields that were high enough to satisfy nearly three times that number of settlers. Tithes, rents, and landlords were blissfully absent. Back to me. In addition to all the food, the trust between the pilgrims and the neighboring tribes was such that the now small band of men, women, and children were able to party for three days with 90 Massasoit warriors— without fear that they would be ambushed and driven out of New England. That would not have been an idle fear, either, because at exactly this time, and only 450 miles to the south, Opa was plotting an exterminating attack on the English settled along the Chesapeake by lulling them into trusting complacency. But no tribe was planning such an attack in New England. Yet. The Pilgrims did not know it yet, But for the next year and a half, they would battle perfidy, betrayal, and enemies within who would threaten them existentially. The perfidy would come from Thomas Weston, the same investor who changed the terms of their deal at the last minute back in London, forcing them to sell critical supplies in order to make up for Weston's unfulfilled promises, and a new batch of settlers who would shortly arrive in Plymouth at Weston's behest. The betrayal would come, sad to say, from Tisquanum, who would play both sides against the middle and disrupt the alliance with Massasoit just when it was most important. Squano was not nearly the hero portrayed in the old-school American classroom, but perhaps we can cut him some slack, too, as I will do a bit down the road. Because, you know, deep down, I'm a softy. It really is not clear whether Weston was a particularly bad guy by today's standards, which we absolutely will not apply. By the standards of his day, however, he was in a lot of trouble. He owed money all over London at a time when deadbeats were sent to prison. He was bobbing and weaving like crazy among creditors, engaged in a shady scheme... To arbitrage aluminum sulfate, then essential to the fixing of dyes into woolen cloth and therefore a strategic metal. And then was put in an even worse position when the Mayflower returned to London in May 1621 without a load of furs, timber, or other valuable goods from the New World. Financial troubles notwithstanding, Weston had fixed the problem of the Pilgrims landing in the wrong place by obtaining a patent from the Council of New England authorizing their settlement where they, in fact, settled. The Pilgrims had established facts on the ground in the famous phrase, so nobody was going to make the move. The investors, however, needed to make it all legal. And they did. Weston also managed to keep enough financial balls in the air, as it were, to finance a second bare-bones ship to Plymouth. The Fortune, a 55-ton vessel, set sail in the fall of 1621, arriving at Plymouth at the end of November. The Fortune carried 35 new passengers, only a few of whom were separatists and mostly young men with almost no supplies for them. They arrived in good health, but destabilized the small pilgrim society in Plymouth. Here's how Filbert put it, quote, With the arrival of the fortune, there would be a total of 66 men in the colony and just 16 women. For every eligible female, there were six eligible men. For young girls such as the 15-year-old Elizabeth Tilley, 19-year-old Priscilla Mullins, and 14-year-old Mary Chilton, all of them orphans, the mounting pressure to marry must have been intense, especially since the new arrivals tended to be, in William Bradford's words, Lusty young men, and many of them wild enough. Adding to the potential volatility of the mix was the fact that there was no place to put them all. Bradford had no choice but to divide them up among the pre-existing seven houses and four public buildings, some of which must have become virtual male dormitories. Back to me, among the passengers on the fortune was a 16-year-old young man named Philip Delanoy, whose French name was eventually spelled Delano, and his descendants included Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Longstanding and attentive listeners will remember the problem of new settlers arriving without supplies to sustain them. When the survivors of the sea venture wreck finally reached Jamestown in their homespun pinnaces in the summer of 1610, They confronted a far worse situation, the skeletal and depraved survivors of Jamestown's starving time. Sir Thomas Gates decided to abandon the settlement rather than starve to death himself. Only Lord Delaware's sudden arrival with a well-supplied fleet rescued Jamestown from abandonment. For the Pilgrims, they faced a doubling of their population just heading into winter. And even after the... Three days of feasting with Massasoit's warriors, they had a pretty good supply of food that needed to be rationed. Bradford believed that on half rations, they had six months' supply, but in the end, they would get through. In addition to sending people without food, Weston sent a snarky note reproving the pilgrims for not sending back valuable cargo on Mayflower. I know your weakness was the cause of it, Weston wrote and I believe more weakness of judgment than weakness of hands. A quarter of the time you spent in discoursing, arguing, and consulting would have done much more. Bradford was not amused. Still, Weston claimed that he remained a staunch supporter of the Pilgrim Settlement, suggesting that it was the other adventurers who were losing faith. Anyway, the threat was clear. They had better send something back with the fortune. The pilgrims spent the next two weeks loading fortune with beaver skins and sassafras, both of which were immensely valuable, and clabbered for making barrel staves and such. While it may seem economically irrational to ship cut wood across the Atlantic, England had been so deforested by the early 17th century that wood was surprisingly scarce and valuable. The commercial cargo was worth more than 400 pounds, enough to cut the debt of the colony in half— but from our perspective, the most valuable cargo on the Fortune was a manuscript, the narrative by Bradford and Edward Winslow known as Mort's Relation. It would turn out to be the most valuable cargo for the pilgrims, too. The Fortune sailed for England on December 13, 1621. Her voyage was unfortunate. She mistook the Brittany Peninsula for the southwestern end of England and sailed into waters hotly contested between Huguenot privateers and the royal fleet of Louis XIII. The king's fleet grabbed the fortune, suspecting it of ferrying supplies to the Huguenots, the royalist governor of the Ile-de-Yeux in the Bay of Biscay, just off the coast of the Huguenot stronghold of La Rochelle. Tossed the master of the fortune in jail and confined the passengers to the ship while he sorted it out. In the end, he concluded that the fortune was not a smuggler or privateer and released her, but not before he confiscated her commercial cargo. The governor had also confiscated the manuscript for Mort's relation, but to the great benefit of historians of New England and listeners to this podcast, he did return that before releasing the fortune. She finally sailed into the Thames on February 17th, 1622. Suffice it to say that Weston was at the brink of being wiped out, which meant getting tossed in the clink, if not the actual Tower of London. After bobbing and weaving and raising a little more money, Weston fled. It's too much to put into this episode, but Nick Bunker describes the rather hilarious story in his excellent book Making Haste from Babylon, involving... Various of his cronies covering for him, but his wife dropping a dime, as it were. If you buy the book from Amazon, consider doing so through the post for this episode on the website. Suffice it further to say that Weston would eventually flee to New Plymouth in 1623 after crossing the Atlantic on a fishing boat disguised as a blacksmith. From Plymouth, he would go to Virginia, outside the practical reach of his creditors, and would remain there for at least the next 17 years, returning to England in 1640. Weston would die of plague in Bristol at some point in the mid-1640s. Before he went to ground, however, Weston managed to cadge the funds to send 60 more settlers to Plymouth, hoping to rescue the only investment that might bail him out. We'll get back to that. It also should be said that Mort's relation would be published by circuitous means, become a bestseller of sorts, and substantially raise the profile of the Pilgrims in New England. That probably helped Weston raise a bit more money. Mort's relation would also stand as one of the several narratives of the Pilgrims that would shape their immortal legacy. Even before the fortune and its mouths to feed arrived, the Pilgrims once again learned of a threat to their security. Rumors found their way to Plymouth. Canonicus, the sachem of the Narragansetts to the west of the Wampanoag, were said to be unhappy over the alliance between Massasoit's Poconoke Wampanoags, say that three times fast, and Plymouth. Then toward the end of November, roughly as the fortune sailed in, a Narragansett messenger arrived looking for Disquantum, who was not then at the settlement. The messenger bore a package, delivered it to the pilgrims, and got out of Dodge. It was a bundle of arrows, wrapped in the skin of a rattlesnake. When Squano returned, he interpreted the arrows as a challenge, meaning a threat, the prelude to war. Bradford filled up the snakeskin with gunpowder and shot, and sent it back to Canaticus. Canaticus was apparently appalled and would not allow it to stay in his village. In Philbrick's words... The powder stuffed snakeskin was passed like a hot potato from village to village until it finally made its way back to Plymouth. Bradford's counter threat seemed to have made the intended impression, but there was obviously no way to know whether an attack might be forthcoming anyway. The decision was made to impale the town, meaning to build a palisade around it, complete with platforms from which to fire on potential attackers with perhaps 50 men on half rations, using inefficient 17th-century axes and saws. Over the course of the next three months, the pilgrims cut down more than 1,000 trees, stripped the branches, sawed them into 10-foot logs, and hauled them from the edge of the woods. They dug post holes in the frozen dirt and lifted the logs into place. By March 1622... Just as Opa Cancana was springing his trap that would launch the Second Anglo-Powhatan War, the Pilgrims had fortified their town, walling themselves in, all to Miles Standish's specifications. Standish once again organized his now enlarged body of young men into a fighting force comprised of four companies. Each had their own duties in case of attack, and Standish drilled them not only in combat, but in firefighting, that being the most serious threat to a wooden town impaled with cut trees. The Pilgrims now presented a much harder target, even as they had also isolated themselves to a degree that both offended their sensibilities and fundamentally made it harder for them to trade with the theoretically allied tribes nearby. So they resolved to re-engage with the world around them and began to prepare a trading party. To be led by Standish to sail in the pinnace into the territory of the Massachusetts tribe. Toward the end of March, sap still dripping from the newly cut trees in the palisade, Habamack, the Poconoke warrior who had joined Standish in the midnight raid on Namaskat the previous summer, and who at Massasoit's direction had been living with the pilgrims through the winter, asked to speak with Bradford and Standish. Habamack had heard that the Massachusetts had teamed up with the Narragansetts. They were planning to ambush Standish's trading party, kill them all, and then turn on the settlement itself. Worse, Habamack said that he had heard that Squanto, who had been moving around the region supposedly on diplomatic missions, was in on the plot. This obviously rattled the Pilgrim leaders. Bradford had become close to Squanto and trusted him. And Standish had his closest relationship with Habamack, who was also a warrior. Had Bradford and Standish been different people, Habamack's accusation might have divided them. Was Habemac the double agent or Squanto? Instead, they huddled and decided that in all events, they had to understand the intentions of the Massachusetts. Standish would lead a trading party, even if now a more wary one, into their territory. In April, Standish, Tusquantum, and Hobamac, and ten armed men departed in the shallop to trade with and suss out the intentions of the Massachusetts to the north. No sooner had they sailed out of sight than an Indian who claimed he was a member of Squanto's family ran into the settlement. His face was bloody, and he was panting as if he had come a long way. He said he had run from Namaskat, and that he had learned that the Narragansetts had teamed up with Massasoit's Poconais to attack Plymouth. He said his face was bloody because he had been hit for speaking up on behalf of the Pilgrims. This was, of course, extremely strange. There was no evidence or even rumor that Massasoit would turn on the Pilgrims. Given Habermack's claim that Squanto was a two-faced weasel, even Bradford, who had trusted Squanto more than Standish had... Smell the rat, to mix a rodentia metaphor. He ordered a cannon to be shot, hoping that Standish would hear it and turn around. Standish did, in fact, hear the cannon and returned to Plymouth with Habamack and a no-doubt uncomfortable Squanto. After hearing what had transpired, Habamack insisted that the claims of Swanto's relative were all lies and that there was... No chance that Massasoit would plan an attack without consulting Hobamac, who was in fact a senior warrior with particular stature, known as a panice. Bradford and Standish agreed to send Hobamac's wife to Massasoit to get to the bottom of Squanto's relative's accusations. She found that all was peaceful at Poconoke, and Massasoit was outraged to hear that Squanto was sowing division between him and the pilgrims. Now to Philbert, quote, Over the next few weeks, it became increasingly clear that Squanto had been laboring long and hard to overthrow Massasoit as the Poconoke's supreme sachem. All winter, he'd been conducting a kind of covert psychological warfare on villages throughout the region. The pilgrims, he claimed, possessed the plague, and they were about to unleash it at will. However, if a village sent him sufficient tribute, he assured them that he could convince the Pilgrims to relent. Gradually, more and more Indians began to look to Squanto rather than Massasoit for protection. Squanto had hoped the false alarm raised by his family member might prompt the Pilgrims to attack Massasoit. In the confusion that ensued, Squanto would emerge as New England's preeminent native leader. It was a bold, risky, and outrageous plan. Rather than accept the decimation of Patuxet as a feticomplee, He had secretly striven to resuscitate his and his family's fortunes by playing the English against the Poconokes in a nervy game of brinksmanship. For Squanto, it had all been about honor, which he loved as his life, Winslow wrote, and preferred before his peace. In just a year, he had gone from being Massasoit's prisoner to being one of his chief rivals, but his ambitions, it now seemed, had gotten the better of him. Back to me, at some point in May 1622, Massasoit came to Plymouth to enforce the provisions of the treaty they had signed with him. In his reading, no doubt a fair one, it required that the pilgrims extradite Tisquantum so that Massasoit could execute him, or execute him themselves. Bradford, suspicious as he now was of the interpreter, was his genuine friend. And in Bradford's estimation, Squanto was essential to the continued prosperity of his settlement. Bradford stalled, trying to placate Massasoit who would have none of it. Squanto, for his part, accused Habamack of having lied about him. Nevertheless, Bradford seemed just about to turn Squanto over when a ship arrived in the harbor. Bradford used it as an excuse to stall for time. And Massasoit stormed out in rage. ruh We shall get to Squanto's fate and legacy soon enough. The ship, really a boat, was the first of several small vessels sent by Thomas Weston, who had somehow scraped together the cash to send more settlers, again with no supplies beyond those needed for the crossing. But it was not to help the pilgrims, to whom he had only recently expressed unqualified support. The 60 new settlers were strangers all and were destined to establish a new settlement, competitive with Plymouth, somewhere in the area. Weston requested, insisted, might be a better word, that the pilgrims feed them while they scouted for a good place to establish themselves. He communicated this in letters that Bradford deemed tedious and impertinent. I regret not using those words more frequently in corporate meetings. And even Weston admitted that these were rude fellows. The pilgrims were thin, having been on half rations since the fall, and now had to contend with another 60 miles to feed. With spring, the birds of winter had gone away, but the fish had returned in force. Unfortunately, the pilgrims knew much less about fishing than farming. The fish were so abundant that they carried away their frail nets so they didn't catch enough to feed as many as 140 people, now stacked up at Plymouth. They survived by finding shellfish in the mudflats at low tide, hardly enough to keep up the strength of the settlement. Worse, when they planted their corn, Weston's men, confirming they were not of the better sort, took to eating immature corn in the fields, which drastically reduced the future yield of the crop that would be harvested in the fall. Weston ship also brought the terrible news of the fortune seizure, which meant that the Pilgrims were in an even deeper financial hole than the previous fall. Around the same time, they received another letter. This from a charitably-minded cod fisherman operating off the coast of Maine. He informed them of Opacankanae's attack on the settlers along the James River and the slaughter of 347 colonists, a story I really will take up next time. The fisherman had a way with words in his warning. Happy is he whom other men's harms doth make to beware. This at a time when the Pilgrims' relationship with the Wampanoag, loyal to Massasoit, was itself on the brink of catastrophe over the disposition of Squanto. So they went to work on a blockhouse to strengthen their defenses even more. By the fall 1622, Weston's men, except those who were sick and remained in the care of the very charitable pilgrims, left to settle in Wessagusset, 22 miles to the north of Plymouth at the site of today's Weymouth. It was in fact a great location for a settlement, with one important flaw. It was decidedly in the territory of the Massachusetts tribe, and by no means unoccupied or abandoned as Patuxet had been. This would turn out to be a catastrophic decision, and yet it would paradoxically lead to a more durable peace for the Pilgrims at Plymouth, but only after some bold decisions and ballsy actions on their part. The shortage of food for the English in the region was the most pressing problem for both Plymouth and the new settlement at Wessagusset. It's a measure of Bradford's practical judgment, that the Pilgrims would team up with the newcomers, ungodly and disreputable as they were, to trade for food at the south of Cape Cod. Before we get to all of that excitement, and trust me when I say that 1623 in Massachusetts will be quite a year, we shall return to Virginia and Opa war. There will be a lot of violence and a serious body count, which I know you will all enjoy. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you guys. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the podcast. Rate the podcast if your app of choice gives you the option. Tell all your worthiest friends. Follow us on Twitter or Facebook. And send me emails. Until next time.